Hello and a very warm welcome to Changing World New Opportunities. I'm Louise Farrand. And I'm Lorna Kennedy. In our second season of the podcast, we're interviewing senior investment figures from Master Trust Pension Schemes. We're asking them to reflect on the investment challenges facing them as DC leaders. What are they excited about and what's keeping them awake at night? If you'd like to find out as soon as a new episode comes out, you could subscribe to our email alert at www.dcif.co.uk and click hear more. Or you could follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at DCIF underscore UK. On with the show. Hello, listeners. We thought that for this first episode of the podcast this season, we should introduce our brand new co-host, Lorna Kennedy. Hello, Lorna. Hi, Louise. I'm feeling quite nervous now. I'm wondering what on earth you're going to ask me. <laughs> well, we've known each other a long time, haven't we? We have, yeah. It feels like... When did the DCAS start? I think it was about 15 years ago and I joined, it'll be nine years ago in November. And I interviewed you, Louise. <gasps> oh my God, you did. You were on that terrifying panel in the Gherkin, weren't you? I was one of the nice ones, though, you know, if you've got to have a nasty one and a nice one. I like to feel I was playing the nice role nine years ago on the panel. (laughs) I think you were definitely good cop. Yeah. (laughs) God, that feels like such a long time ago now. It does. It really does. You think about DC and you think it's new. And then as we were talking about this before we pressed record, it's like, oh, my goodness, I've been working in the DC industry for 23 years. (laughs) 23 years. Okay. So you have never told me how you actually got into DC in the first place and then where your career started. I know we both did a politics degree, but what happened for you after that? Well, I did a politics degree up here in Edinburgh and then I was tempted by the big smoke. So I had a job in, it was for a a non-profit making organisation called the Centre for Economic Policy Research. So I packed my bags and I got on the train. I had nowhere to live and I <laughs> on a mate's floor until I found somewhere to live. And I worked in the publishing department of the Centre for Economic Policy Research, which is fab. So it's a tiny, tiny company. There were 22 of us in the office at that point near Barbican. But we had lots of links with lots of research fellows at universities all around the world. They published the economic journal for anybody who thinks back to their economics days. So it was exciting. If you wanted to speak to the chief exec, hey, he was sitting next to you and access to all these academics, which was quite fun. Yeah, I can imagine. I had no money, but I was having a lot of fun. And then that lasted a couple of years and I was tempted back up to Scotland for love. So I came back up to get married. (laughs) That's lovely. And then I joined Scottish Equitable Asset Management, as was at that point doing some investment writing. And from there moved to Bailey Gifford, I guess doing a kind of client support marketing role. So getting involved in preparing presentations, writing RFPs, dealing with client queries. So I did that for about a year and then went into more of a client-facing role. And that was at the point where we had relationships with quite a few of the DC platforms, but they were just all kind of getting themselves together at that point. And we had different client contacts here dealing with different ones. So somebody would look after AXA, somebody else would look after Standard Life. And we brought them all together 
at that point. And that's what I moved to do. And, you know, it's been DC ever since. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I never knew that your route in was so similar to mine, you know, politics and then writing and then into asset management from there. Wow. I wonder how many of us there are that I just don't know about. Exactly. There's probably more than you think. Probably. Okay, so tell us now then, Lorna, what would a typical day look like for you? Oh, it's so tricky. I don't think there is a typical day. Getting the balance is quite difficult. So that's something I would say that I struggle with. So I manage a team. So it's very important for me that I'm spending time with the people and making sure that that they're developing. I'm a partner at Bailey Gifford. So I've got corporate stuff that has to be done. So that's another pull on my time. And then the bit that I want to be doing, obviously, is the external piece. I want to be seeing my clients. I want to be chatting to consultants, doing all that stuff. But it's a bit of a juggle, to be honest. So yeah, I've not quite found a typical day. Yeah, me neither. And then we both also have the whole travel to London thing. You from northerly north and me from southerly south. And we converge occasionally in the middle. (laughs) I enjoy that, to be honest. So we had the whole COVID interruption and we all got used to Zoom, which is great in some ways, but definitely can't really form relationships with a screen between you. So it's lovely to be back seeing people in person. And I'm trying to be a bit smarter about the London trips. I know that you're trying to do the same as well. And back in the day, I would do a day trip to London. And I'm trying not to do that. So go down for a couple of days, fill it up with some meetings, and then you can have a mix of more formal and informal chats with folks, which I think is a better use of time. I find it quite energising, actually. I love trips to London and speaking to different people. And usually it's a bit warmer down there. So I like that too. Little tropical break. Yeah, I feel the same. When I come back from London, I'm always buzzing and full of energy and ideas. It's good. Exactly. And I'm back to balance again. But you just need to get that right, don't you? So you don't want to be there all the time. So you've got work to do. But getting that right is good. I think it's, it's good for the energy. Yeah, definitely. So I'm going to ask you a question we're asking all our podcast guests this season. Lorna, what is keeping you awake at night? Do you know, Louise, nothing is keeping me awake at night because I sleep so well. <laughs> what, what do I worry about? I just worry about members' outcomes, I suppose. I mean, that sounds a bit cheesy, but I worry that we're going to get to people's retirement. Well, firstly, they're not going to have enough money to retire on. But secondly, that's going to come as a surprise to them. Now, I think we as an industry, we need to do a better job. So I know it's about members contributing more, but it's also about us giving them a good investment journey and then communicating properly so they don't get to that cliff edge and they think, oh God, I don't have any money. What am I going to do? Yeah. Oh, me too. I feel exactly the same way. Okay. And I guess we'll return to that conversation throughout the series, won't we? Absolutely. And I'm sure there'll be all sorts of things for us to worry about, but I'm sure there'll be lots of positive things that we can take from the series as well. Yeah, definitely. If you could change one thing about asset management, what would it be? We're asking all our guests this season a similar kind of question. I've just reframed it very slightly for you, as you obviously work within asset management and our guests don't. Yeah, well, I think what's our plea for asset managers? I guess a bit more clarity. So 
let's be clear about what we're doing. So if you've got a strategy that you manage, just communicate very clearly what it is it's trying to do in very clear language and then stick to it. I don't think that should be too much to ask. And finally, can you share with our audience some of your passions and interests outside of work? What do you like to do when you're not flitting around the country or at your desk or in meetings? Yeah, well, I have suddenly got more free time because my kids have kind of flown the nest now. So my husband and I are at home alone, which is very strange. So I I feel like I'm going to have a spurt of new hobbies. But yeah, running is my release. So I love running and it's a good time to think and it keeps me healthy. So that's what I'm doing just now. And then I'm going to commit to something so you can hold me to it. (laughs) I'm going to improve my language skills. So Mm -hmm. I I did do French back in the day at uni as well with with my politics Ah. degree. So I am going to find a way to brush up on my French now I have got a little bit more time. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I will ask you again at the end of the season (laughs) how you're doing on that. I'm going to hold you to account. But thank you very much, Lorna. That was very interesting. And I'm sure it will help everyone listening to the season to feel like they know you a little bit better. So thank you very much. Thanks, Louise. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. This week, we are interviewing Julius Purcell, a scheme strategist at Cushion. Julius, Lorna and I were just saying that he is one of the deeper thinkers in DC. And I think that's very clear from this conversation, isn't it, Lorna? Yeah, I've had a really fun conversation. I was just saying that I feel we could have talked for much, much longer and just some of the points that Julius brings out. He's just thinking about things from a slightly different angle to many people that we talk to in the industry. So it's fascinating, really fascinating. Yeah, I said to him after our conversation, I think he's made me rethink Mansion House and the concept of fiduciary duty, which we get into about halfway through the episode, I think. And also he has a really interesting take on how to engage members with investments, which if you listen, I think it's right near the beginning, maybe five minutes into this conversation, definitely something for us all to reflect on and take into our engagements and conversations with members, I think. Absolutely. Kind of turns that on its head, doesn't it? And that's a teaser there. You need to listen more till you find out what the answer is. Exactly. So we'll hand over to Julia. So hi, Julia. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. It's a great pleasure. Julius, I'm sure that you'll be very well known to most of our listeners, but I wonder if we could just kick off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and maybe a bit about your career path up to now. Yeah, by all means. So I currently work with a UK masterclass called Cushion. I lead Cushion's investment office, and that's essentially involved redesigning Cushion's investment strategy over the course of the last couple of years. Prior to that, I have a long career working with insurance companies and pension funds, principally around DC and retail savings. I've been a non-exec actually for the last 20 odd years and unusually Cushion persuaded me to go back to work as an executive for the first time, which I did because I'm very excited about what Cushion is doing in the UK marketplace. Yeah, Cushion seems to be leading the way in lots of ways. It's very innovative and I'm sure it's a very interesting job designing their investment proposition. So I could see why that would tempt you. So hopefully we'll get into more details about that as we go through the conversation. Absolutely. So with Cushion, what was it about Cushion that made you take that step from non-exec back into the busy world of exec life? (laughs) 
well, two principal things. When I first started talking to Cushion, there were two aspects of the value proposition which really interested me. So the first one was their commitment to doing more faster on climate. So when I began talking with Cushion's founder, Ben Pollard, they were just launching their net zero now proposition, which was delivered by combining a relatively low carbon investment strategy with carbon offsets purchased on Cushion's own balance sheet to get the proposition, not the investment strategy, but the proposition to net zero. And Ben's mandate to me was, can you design an investment strategy for me, which will be radically lower carbon emitting and therefore reduce the balance sheet liability to cushion over time of this net zero now undertaking. So that was very interesting, very exciting, a new challenge. Nobody had really set about building an investment strategy specifically targeting as low a level of emissions and as low an emission trajectory as was consistent with a fiduciary duty. The second thing that really interested me was Cushion's technology. And so for the first time, I saw a possibility of actually engaging effectively with members over their DC pension, an issue which I'd previously in non-exec roles thrown literally tens of millions of pounds at over the course of 20 years and frankly got almost zero value for money back. So those two things I thought were radical, potentially even transformational. And that's why I, I took the step to become an executive again. Wow. That's really interesting. Thank you. I don't think we've ever talked about that before. And perhaps engagement is something we can talk a bit more about. It's on my mind a bit at the moment. We've got a research project with Ignition House coming out next week, which talks a bit about engagement. And it's a bit depressing because you look at people's understanding of responsible investments since 2018. And we've done four of these surveys. And I think one year it's 18% say they understand it well. And then the next year it's 17. And then the next year it's up to 19. And then it's back to 17. And it's just sort of flatlining. And it's made me think quite existentially, like, are we doing the right thing here? Are we chasing the right goal? Or are we just wasting loads of time and money? What do you think? I think that's a brilliant question. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I've had communication programs which have had a set objective. I've spent millions of pounds and the metric's gone down. So rather to your point, which you make you think, well, why did I do that? So I think we've been going about it all wrong, actually. I think we have. So many times I've had ideas around connecting members to their investment strategy in ways which would interest them and deliver value today. So that's the crucial point. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Only to have pension managers often say, well, no, that's too complex. We need to ensure members understand what their pension scheme is first. We need a basic level of financial literacy. And I think that's where the industry has gone completely wrong. I think it is immensely hard to persuade a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old, even a 35 or 40-year-old to take time out of their current schedule in order to deliver some tangible, unquantified benefit 20, 30, 40, or even maybe 50 years hence. That, because of the phenomenon, the behavioral phenomenon of hyper-discounting, it's kind of impossible. You cannot get people to do that. So my sense of where we've been going wrong is we've been trying to persuade people they should give up dinner out with their partner on Saturday in order to increase their contributions or hours of their day to understand this very complicated, dry stuff, which will have no bearing on their lives for the next 40 years. What we should rather be doing is focusing on how we deliver value to them today in the here and now. And I think now we can do that. So here's my favorite current example. Imagine you are a pension member with ideally, obviously, a cushion app on your mobile device. You're driving along. Perhaps you're the passenger since we want you to look left. Your app pings, says, look left. 
or do you see you see a wind turbine on a hill and your app says well done that's your last month's pension contribution that allowed that turbine to be built i'm playing fast and loose with my detail but you get the notion this is your winter feel proud of it because without you that turbine would not have been built that delivers value in the here and now it makes you feel good today and i think it's possible to parse that into better general levels of engagement there's lots of evidence that that is the case i don't think anybody's done it successfully yet but the empirical evidence is clear impact strategies lead to higher levels of engagement higher levels of engagement lead to better outcomes typically through higher contribution levels that empirical evidence is out there it's extensive it's frankly impossible to argue with what nobody's done yet is to hook those things together with a really slick digital journey and show that it actually all joins up yeah i love that that's so interesting i hadn't thought about it like that before so we're trying to get people to save for their future selves and all the behavioral problems that come with that I mean, I'm 37 now and I mean, I work in pensions and I find it hard to imagine myself as a retired person. But like you say, if I feel like my pension is doing good and I can actually see it right now, here's what's happening and here's how your pension is doing good, that does make me feel better. I hadn't really thought about it like that before. So it's slightly more nuanced than I've been framing it as, I suppose, Julia. So that's really helpful. Thank you. And I'm sure other people listening will find that helpful too. Do you have a challenge, Julius, with People feel good when they see the wind farm and they enjoy the digital journey and they're much more engaged. Do you have a challenge convincing them that they're not giving up return? You're preaching to the converted here, but do you need a proof statement to say, well, it's not philanthropic, this wind turbine. This is actually, you're still going to have a good amount for your pension at the end. It's a win-win situation. Do you deal with that up front or are you trying to win the engagement battle first? It's a really important dynamic going on here. And it's not even one just for the member. It's one for the trustees, right? Because the trustees, any board of trustees, is very, very nervous about the notion of giving up investment return. Even if you might want to argue, member outcomes will be better because members will be contributing more. That's a complex argument. It's a difficult argument without really hard empirical evidence, which is why I said actually showing how this can be done is relevant and important. But generally speaking, I don't think this is an issue. It obviously depends upon your investment beliefs. So for our trustees, and our trustees have a very clear view that they are responsible for member outcomes, and therefore it's up to them to make absolutely clear in their own minds, or be clear in their own minds, that the investment decisions they make are in members' long-term financial interests. Our trustees' views are increasingly clear that the financial impact of climate change has been materially underestimated, persistently and materially underestimated. We might talk about the problem of integrated assessment models driving all the climate scenario analysis, which is being used by most trustees at the moment. And you couple that with the view that therefore the market has mispriced risks. And I'm not sure if you've come across the term a Minsky moment. Minsky was an economist who talked about how bubbles burst and lead to a collapse in asset values. Our trustees and Cushion are absolutely convinced that we will see a series of climate Minsky moments where you see asset values collapsing as a result of the impact of both physical risks and transition risks. And therefore, it's not so much that your climate assets are going to deliver you an adequate return. It's that that's where you want to be invested in order to ride out this series of Minsky moments. So for us, and the messaging we deliver to our members is that 
these assets will improve your risk-adjusted return. Not that you can invest in them without worrying about losing return. It's a very different message. And I think it's the right message. So, Julius, let's take a step back and look back at recent investment performance for a minute. We're asking all our senior investment people, I don't want to say CIOs because not everyone is a CIO, but all our senior guests on this season to reflect on what happened in 2022. And I suppose not a Minsky moment, but certainly unexpected volatility that no one could really have predicted that we're still seeing the effects of this year. How did Cushion get on? And have you learned anything and changed anything as a result of last year? Well, yes, we have, as it happens. We were not badly affected. I think there are two strands I'd like to unpick, one of which is the behaviour of bonds as an asset class. And the other one is inflation. I mean, not clearly unconnected, clearly very much connected. But the inflation was caused by, among other things, a big spike in energy prices. And that potentially had big implications for any investment strategy, which was very heavily underweight oil and gas, which Cushion is because of our worry about a climate Minsky moment around oil and gas. So we were on the reverse end of a Minsky moment in the oil and gas sector. So let's unpick both of those things. So first of all, bonds. We were, I guess, fortunate in that we have a very modest level of exposure to debt in our accumulation phase, particularly in the growth part of our accumulation phase. And with a 10% allocation, we had pretty limited exposure, but obviously that exposure was hurt. We had about a seven-year duration in that exposure. So the first thing we started to do pretty early on was to think about how we might reduce duration exposure. And we ended up by appointing a multi-asset credit manager alongside our investment grade bond managers. You might ask, well, why haven't we done that in the first place? Well, we hadn't done it in the first place because we couldn't find a manager that had really deep climate credentials. By that point, we could find a manager that was credible as a MAC provider and had deep climate credentials. So we were very pleased to appoint a MAC manager alongside our investment grade, which reduced our duration exposure. So that was one thing we did. Second thing we did, we started thinking about commodity exposure, one of the great hedges against unexpected uh, bursts of inflation. We didn't have any commodity exposure. Again, why didn't we? Well, because we couldn't find any SG integrated commodity exposure mandate where they didn't have children mining bauxite. That's a really big issue. The environmental, social and environmental damage that's done in the upstream supply chain for many of these mandates is unacceptable from Christian's perspective. So we started talking to managers about ESG and integrated and climate-aware commodity mandates. We are well advanced in those conversations. We think we've identified a manager who could supply a product to us, but we are not yet at the stage of um, going through a formal due diligence process. So that's what we did in terms of bonds. I drifted a bit into inflation with the commodity exposure. So let's talk a little bit about, so how did our climate index perform? This is our global listed equity exposure, where we had a 90% underweight to oil and gas. We did underperform, but very, very marginally because we had balancing overweights in sectors which performed very well. And I, I think the lesson which we took from that was that, at least in that scenario, we proved it's possible to run a reasonably concentrated climate-aware mandate, 1,700 stocks in a global index, as opposed to, I don't know, what, 3,000 you might hold in the equivalent non-ESG, non-climate-aware alternative, without actually doing any damage at all. So adequate levels of diversification, despite a 90% oil and gas underweight. So that was very positive for us. So you know, some changes and one positive reinforcing message came out of uh, 2022. Fantastic. Thank you. 
I guess at the moment there's lots going on in pensions and we can't really say that it's boring. And I'm sure we'll come on to talk about the mansion house reforms in more detail. But I wondered from a more general point of view, how do you think about shaping your investment strategy when there's so much uncertainty about when people will retire or how they'll retire, how they'll take their money? How do you take all that into consideration? We think long and hard about that. I've been a trustee, I've been a fiduciary for many, many years. I'm not at the moment, but it's one of the issues you have to worry. I used to worry about a great deal. So to what extent should we build an investment strategy which mitigates bad outcomes for people who take their benefits at points which are different to the ones they expected to or the ones they told you they were going to? And that, I think, is a really profound question for fiduciaries because generally, mitigating risks for those we might describe them as unlucky cohorts of members who find themselves taking benefits when they'd be better off not taking benefits at that point. The way you protect those unlucky cohorts of members is typically to take risk off the table. And you take risk off the table for everybody. And that means that you are reducing the expected returns for all those members who take benefits when they expect to take them. And if you look at the dynamics of a typical scheme, those members pay a really big price for often very modest improvements in outcomes for those unlucky cohorts. So when I was chair of the previous DC scheme, I chaired, we did a lot of modeling to look at the trade-offs between those less unlucky cohorts and the unlucky cohorts of taking risk off the table. And we found that you have to do quite a disservice to 95% of your members in order to get any decent improvement in the outcomes for the remaining five. That's a very hard decision for a trustee board. And the conclusion I reached, I think, when I joined Cushion was that we don't think investment changes are the right way to deal with that uncertainty. It's essentially a communication problem. So if you have much, much higher levels of member engagement, then you can effectively reduce or even ideally remove the problem of members taking benefits at points they haven't told you to. Not completely, in fairness, because things happen. You know, there is always uncertainty in people's lives. People's plans change. But hopefully that's a very, very, very small proportion of members. Now, the upshot of those trade-offs, and I don't think there are any right answers here. This is for each fiduciary to reach their own conclusions about. But for me as a fiduciary and for our fiduciaries at Cushion, the answer has been to deliver a relatively high risk asset exposure level during the growth phase of the accumulation phase, and then to have a pretty short de-risking phase. So we have a seven-year de-risking phase, which is a short one. And if you had very low levels of engagement, you might want to have a bigger one. But we have high levels of member engagement, and therefore we are comfortable having a shorter one. But ultimately, this is always a matter of compromise. I don't think it's right for trustees to materially reduce the expected benefits for 95% of their members in order to produce a modest improvement for 5%. That feels to me a very difficult equation for a trustee to get comfortable with. Yeah, and if you have the goal of having a more engaged membership, then you're trying to just keep that number as small as possible who may have less good outcomes. I think there's also another dynamic at work here, isn't there? Now we're in a world where most, not all, but most default investment strategies involve a degree of de-risking, but not dramatic de-risking, because they're probably now targeting a drawdown proposition. Actually, if your de-risking strategy 
is not quite rightly correctly targeted at the right point in time, the damage that's done is rather more modest because you're still invested in those risk assets. You may be slightly less invested, but you're still invested in those risk assets. Very different from an investment strategy where you are shifting from risk assets into cash, for example, where frankly, I think you should be very alarmed as a fiduciary if you have a lot of members who don't take their benefits when they tell you they're going to, because if they take them too soon, well, they're impossibly exposed to risk assets. If they take them too late, they've been sitting in cash for years and probably in a high inflationary environment done a huge amount of damage. So it's perhaps a roundabout way of saying, I think fiduciaries probably are safer in drawdown type de-risking strategies than they are in a cash de-risking strategy if they're worrying about managing the point of de-risking accurately. Absolutely, because with drawdown, I mean, you still need a sizable chunk in growth assets because you hope that people are going to live for a long time when they retire. Yeah, exactly. I think from memory, I think we hold about 40% in equities and we're also aiming to hold about 10% in private markets still. Coming on to your house point we're going to raise in a moment, a significant proportion of which is actually in private equity. Yeah. Well, maybe we should just talk about that just now, Julia. Since we're on the topic, as you said, Mansion House has put private markets firmly in the spotlight, even more so than they were already. I think as an industry, we've been talking about it for a while, but it certainly pushed it up the agenda. It would be great to hear your broad take on the reforms in the Mansion House Compact and then maybe a bit more details about how you think about it at Cushion, how you think about private markets. Broadly speaking, Cushion's very positive about uh, the Mansion House Compact, which is not to say there aren't any issues, because there are a lot of issues, clearly. No trustee likes being told what to do. No trustee likes being told where to invest. The UK has not been the most attractive investment geography to hold for many, many years. And trustees, therefore, are rightly concerned about being forced to allocate any assets to the UK when it's not justified from a hard investment and perspective. So I think that's one issue. I think there's an issue, related issue around geographic diversification. If you are going to allocate to a specific set of assets, then most trustees will start by saying, well, we'd like those to be geographically diversified. Thank you very much, which clearly obviously presents problems. But I think there are some counterbalancing arguments, which I think are important and interesting. I think let's talk about fiduciary duty first. It's always seemed to me to be perverse that trustees might find themselves conceivably being driven to invest by their interpretation of fiduciary duty in an investment strategy which delivers an extra £1,000 a year for them in retirement, but which is at the same time contributing to or failing to address problems of societal collapse in the society into which those members are going to retire. So what value an extra £1,000 worth of retirement income if your members are retiring into a society which doesn't have a functioning health system, doesn't have a functioning social care system, doesn't have a functioning education system, doesn't have a functioning legal system, and we could go on, couldn't we? It seems to me that a broad interpretation of fiduciary duty ought to allow trustees to consider the standard of living their members are going to enjoy in retirement, and that is not just driven by the size of their pot and the income can produce. It's driven by what that pot can buy in the society into which they're going to retire. And if it costs you twice as much to buy access to a green space, because there are no green spaces available for free, then that's clearly a reduction in their standard of living and ought to be incorporated into the fiduciary duty. And that's my personal view. It's not a view taken by 
mainstream legal opinion in the UK yet. We see some beginnings of thinking along those lines and some producers who are very uncomfortable that they may be forced to invest in that strategy which delivers the extra thousand pounds but at huge societal cost. The difficulty of course is it's very hard to show a clear connection between an investment and an improvement in those societal outcomes. I think that's maybe where the Mansion House compact helps because it's a scale investment and therefore if everybody makes those commitments and those investments you can arguably believe that that strategy is improving your members standard of living as a result of improving societal infrastructure. So a long thought piece, essentially where that gets me is that we probably need to get some better new guidance on fiduciary duty. And I've seen a lot of submissions to the recent consultation, which have some good ideas as to how that could be done without delivering any adverse outcomes, unexpected adverse outcomes. So I think that's one issue which is important. I think the other issue which is important is, going back to my previous comment about this idea of making field members proud of their pension. I think, Louise, you hit this point, didn't you? If you could actually see it, touch it, feel it, walk around it, see the impact it's having on the society around you, that has more value than, for example, I'm not disparaging the idea of investment in Philippine forestry. Yeah, it's a great thing, but it's hard to crystallize that incremental value we've just talked about. Much harder. You're not going to have many members on holiday in the Brazilian rainforest with their apps going ping and saying, feel good, that's your tree. We need to be doing those things as well, obviously, but there is something particular about a UK cited asset, which has, in my view, crude terms, monetizable value. We can monetize the value of a UK cited asset in the here and now by making a member feel proud of it and using that to improve member outcomes and monetize it also in terms of improved value for money for employers. This is a notion we've not talked about yet. If you were to compare two employers, one employer is with a great scheme, it's doing perfectly well, but not a single employee, I'm exaggerating to make the point, can name the provider the employer has chosen on their behalf. Not a single employee knows the first thing about the investment strategy. Now contrast with an employer with the same investment returns, the same cost base, but where 90% of their employees know the provider they've chosen, are proud of the provider that their employer has chosen, feel good about it, which employer is getting better value for money for their pension spend? I'm really clear in my own mind, it's the second one, right? So for employers, pension spend is a big component part of their cost base. So it's important that we build strategies which deliver value for money for them as well. And I think UK cited assets, connecting this whole thought piece together, can improve employer value for money because it can make employees aware of the assets that they are investing in with their pension contributions and feel good about them. Do you think it's strange then, from your point of view, that Mansion House had this focus on private equity rather than a broader definition of private markets, like like wind farms or or whatever, that's helping the UK economy? Well, let's talk about Cushion's allocation to private markets. That's probably the best way of answering that question. Actually, Cushion's are very supportive of private equity, and we're very supportive of private equity because we think that members need the additional return boost that you can get from well-managed private equity where the fees aren't too high. And the private equity we run is managed without performance fees. It's managed to a very reasonable TER. Cushion's total TER for its default investment strategy is only 15 basis points. And we have something around, well, we have around a 5% allocation to private equity, maybe a marginal exaggeration, maybe four, 
but we're in that kind of space already and therefore it can be done within the post envelope and we certainly think that private equity is very very important we think that other assets are also important so we think that while private equity should produce the performance improvements that members need given their contribution patterns we think that other assets also produce attractive and often extremely well diversified streams of return so natural capital for example we think is a very very important asset class we think that natural capital in the uk is an important sub asset class and we expect to be allocating to uk cited natural capital assets in sometime over the next year or so and we already have a mandate out to tender so we're well advanced in terms of our thinking so for us it's not just private equity it is also debt like assets so as you pointed out the stream of returns from renewable energy we think is important and interesting gives some inflation protection natural capital and other assets like social housing which also build out uk societal infrastructure i should just point out for the sake of clarification that that 5% private equity exposure is not all uk but broadly speaking we are pretty well in line with the mansion house broad undertaking of 5% of private market assets at least allocated to the uk and we will certainly exceed that i think once we add in our natural capital assets you bring natural capital to life because i feel as though it's so interesting but not that well understood at the moment everyone's talking about it but i'm sure you're much further ahead than a lot of pension schemes are in terms of thinking about natural capital could you explain a little bit about the types of assets that would fall under the kind of category of natural capital and how you're thinking about what a good investment in natural capital might look like yeah Absolutely. So we already have a modest allocation of natural capital via our shareholders' mandate. It's some more or less traditional forestry in the US. So that's where you might start with your natural capital definition. So what is it? Well, it's commercially managed timber. So why might that meet a natural capital definition? Well, because if that timber is being cut and it's being used in the building trade and it's displacing cement and steel, both very very high carbon emitting uh, products then it's making a contribution to climate transition. So that would be maybe the first rung of a natural capital strategy. But I think increasingly one then thinks about natural capital strategies doing rather different things than supplying timber to whatever sources of timber demand you want to meet. So we naturally turn our minds to carbon sequestration, which is, I guess, perhaps where most people start when they think about a natural capital mandate. And why is carbon sequestration interesting? Well, because, as we know, we can't achieve Paris goals without a significant amount of carbon sequestration. Open question as to how much that can come from natural capital and how much from tech-driven carbon sequestration sources. But we know there's going to be a very significant demand for natural capital carbon sequestration. And what forms might that take in terms of a natural capital strategy? Well, the quickest way of delivering carbon sequestration is by recreating existing or recreating previously existing peatland. So refudding peatland is a very, very fast way of delivering a stream of carbon credits. So peatland is an obvious source of carbon sequestration and an obvious candidate for inclusion in, in a natural capital mandate. Then you might want to think about things like blue, blue carbon. You can call that many things. I use the term blue carbon. So that might mean something like seagrass as a source of carbon sequestration or mangroves as a source of carbon sequestration. Maybe commercialisable in different ways. So mangroves you might commercialise alongside the carbon sequestration by getting credits for coastal protection in due course. 
So there are typically many different sources of revenue you might find from a natural capital mandate. You might find, for example, some biodiversity credits that you might also be able to generate from your natural capital mandate. So natural capital can mean many, many different things to many, many different people. But I think probably if you mentioned natural capital to most organizations at the moment, they think principally about a natural asset which sequesters carbon and probably includes some biodiversity gain as well. Thank you. I feel like we've all just got our heads around TCFD and now we're hearing about TNFD. Is that something you're looking at and thinking about now? Um, Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, I've just come off a call with an organisation that is absolutely thinking very deeply about TNFD and they're thinking about how they would build in biodiversity gain in various forms, possibly credits, possibly simply through the enhanced value of a carbon sequestration credit because it has good biodiversity credentials. They're thinking about that right now. Their assessment is that TNFD is probably about four years behind, but absolutely we are thinking about biodiversity gain The idea of a pure biodiversity mandate at the moment, I think that's quite fringe. There are some organizations who are talking about a pure biodiversity gain mandate, but the immediate avenues to monetize those biodiversity gains are not hugely clear. There's a great deal of uncertainty, and I think probably are beyond currently the risk appetite uh, for most trustee boards. So I think for the next period, it's going to be a matter of worrying about how your existing mandates might perform against some sort of nature disclosure regulation. And that would cover listed equities, obviously. There are organizations like Nature Alpha who are producing data about biodiversity loss and deforestation risks across listed assets. And obviously about biodiversity gain, typically at the moment, at least as far as our research is concerned, focused in in the private asset space. And my impression is you've got a pretty varied and interesting job, Julius. So today you've already had a call on TNFD and obviously a, a lovely podcast with the DCIF. But is that typical? What does a typical day look like for you and your job? So I'm very fortunate in that there's huge organisational support for pushing the envelope in areas such as the ones we've been talking about. I mean, frankly, if it were not the case that Christian has a set of beliefs about the financial materiality of these issues, then it would be much more difficult to justify the time spent on these projects, which I freely admit I find fascinating and and keep me motivated and make me want to go to work in the morning. But since we have an absolute conviction around this notion of climate Minsky moments, this is the day job, right? This is thinking about how we manage risk in a DC scheme. I spend a lot of my time thinking about risk in a more conventional framework. So we think a lot about how Cushion's investment strategy looks in terms of expected risk and return against all the default funds of the master trusts against which we compete. And so it's not only climate risk, clearly, and therefore we think about mandates which will improve our forward-looking risk-adjusted return, even if they do not have a deep climate focus, providing they meet some pretty demanding minimum climate risk mitigation requirements. But beyond that, because we think these risks are so large, we do spend quite a lot of time thinking about them, which I find very rewarding. There may come a point, of course, where the market begins to reprice these risks. I mean, a Minsky moment is a repricing of those risks. And at that point, we may well find ourselves in a world where much of the climate risk we're currently planning to mitigate in terms of our members' forward-looking returns are repriced by markets. And therefore, it does not make sense to 
carry on with really deep climate risk mitigation because those risks are now well priced by the market. And I fully expect that to happen. Otherwise, there would be no Minsky moment. So at that point, it will be time to think about other risks in more detail that our members are facing. But it's not climate at the, uh, the expense of all other risks. It's climate alongside other risks, but it's a particularly big risk. Well, you've just spent a couple of minutes talking about risk. And my next question is, what's keeping you awake at night, Julius? Is it in the next Minsky moment? Actually, I have to say, I sleep very well, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're on the right side of this, Julius, aren't you? No, I was being flippant and I was tempted to answer, you know, my children's weddings, they definitely keep me awake at oh, night. Oh, gosh. From an investment perspective, what, what do I worry about? The Ukraine war was something which was, I didn't see that coming. Perhaps one should have seen that coming. The world is a dangerous place, is it not? So what do I really worry about? I worry about a Chinese invasion of Taiwan because that would have dramatic ripple effects across emerging markets. So I definitely worry about how the Ukraine war is going to pan out. I worry about increasing societal inequality in the UK because it seems to me that we're increasing to the point where getting adequate contributions into your pension fund for members is becoming a more and more challenging proposition. So it's not as though there's anything to worry about. There are a huge number of things to worry about. I suppose another way I might have responded to the question is that we think about long-term horizons. I've always done this as a pension fiduciary. So I try and avoid being distracted by quarterly investment commentary, which frankly, exposing one of my prejudices here, I think has very, very little value to a pension fiduciary. We worry mostly about systemic risks, which will have material long-term consequences, rather than wondering whether we should allocate more to the US than to Europe. We spend absolutely no time thinking about whether we should allocate more to the US than Europe over the course of the next 12 months. We don't do tactical asset allocation, I cushion. So I guess the things that would keep your average investment manager or maybe some CIOs, probably not a pension fund so much, but some CIOs awake at night worrying whether they've made the right call in terms of their sector bets or their geographic bets. Those things don't keep me up awake at night because I don't spend a lot of time thinking about them. Perfect. Thank you. And if you had one ask of asset managers, what would it be? What can we as a cohort do to help you? Well, happily, I'd say that Cushion has found the asset management industry enormously responsive to Cushion's pretty difficult positioning around what we're prepared to pay and what we want to see in a particular mandate. So I would say that Cushion's experience, at least over the course of the last year, has last year or two, has been to see an enormous enthusiasm amongst asset managers for delivering against what Mark Fawcett, I think, first called the DC Compact. I think that was a, an interview he did many years ago now with the FT. And the basic idea of the DC Compact was that asset managers who want to play in the DC space need to find probably a master trust partner. And in return for a partnership commitment, the master trust will commit to potentially decades of increasing positive cash flows. In return, the master trust needs that manager to charge lower fees than they can charge on that same scarce capacity today if they're selling it to a sovereign bond fund. Now, we found managers willing to take that compact. Not all, absolutely not all, but a significant number have been willing to take that compact and deliver mandates for cushion, which are new, innovative, and also allow us to deliver at that 15 basis points with a total default fund fee. You know, Nest has similarly found managers who are willing to do that. So, I mean, frankly, I'm much less unhappy with the asset management industry, I think, than many of my colleagues. 
it's been a very, very rewarding two years. And we still have many, many asset managers knocking on our door saying, you know, we'd love to work with you. What would it take? So I'm very happy with the way asset managers are responding to the master trust industry and to Cushion in particular. Brilliant. Well, on that optimistic note, Julius, we will close the podcast and say thank you so much. I've really had a great time listening to your answers. And I feel like you might have even changed my mind a little bit on Mansion House and the concept of fiduciary duty. I have to say I was a bit unconvinced at first. And you'll probably hear that in one of our other interviews where I'm going, but really, really? But now, yeah, I'm really going to go away and think about that. So thank you so, so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's been a great pleasure. Good to talk as always. Thank you for listening to Changing Worlds New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to the show on your favourite podcasting platform. See you next time.